Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. Personal service businesses like salons and spas, <clears throat> excuse me, were ordered closed last month because there was no way for them to operate while practicing physical distancing. At the time, there were concerns some of those businesses would go underground. And now, as Grace Key reports, that's what's starting to happen. It was three weeks ago when provincial health officer Dr. Bonnie Henry issued an order directed at personal service businesses such as salons, barbershops and spas. I'm now ordering that personal service establishments must close until further notice. A scan on Craigslist shows a black market of stylists popping up. One listing reads, at times like this, we need to help each other out. That's why I will be welcoming people into my home COVID-free, LOL, to get them looking fresh again. Another stylist we contacted says he had four appointments last week and he only cuts outdoors. Oh, like for me, though, I always wear gloves, face mask and uh, shield. You wear face mask and shield? Oh, yeah. They're not supposed to be operating. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth says when it comes to policing, there are a couple of tools that can be used for these underground businesses. And so bylaw officers, if they become aware of it or hear a complaint about it, they can investigate. Um, They have the ability to ticket. Uh, It may not be operating with a business license, for example. That's one way. Uh, Another way uh, is through uh, Consumer Protection BC. That's another avenue in which something like this could also be investigated. For personal service workers willing to risk breaking the order and spreading the virus, they could be hit with a fine and possibly lose their business license. Grace Key, Global News. At least 35 inmates and five correctional officers at Mission Institution have tested positive for COVID-19. It's one of the largest cluster outbreaks in the country's federal prison network. As Paul Johnson reports, it has some wondering if releasing low-risk prisoners to protect them, correctional workers, and our hospitals might be an idea whose time has come. Mission Institution, one of several prisons in the eastern Fraser Valley, and currently experiencing the biggest outbreak of COVID-19 in a prison in BC. We are focused on ensuring that the spread does not uh, continue. Correctional Service Canada's cancelled all visits, brought in an outside contractor to do enhanced cleaning and put the prison on lockdown. They're also looking at which prisoners can be safely released until the outbreak has been brought under control. Obviously, we are focused on those that are most vulnerable medically um, to look at those cases that can be managed in the communities. Early or temporary release of some prisoners may be unsettling to some in the public. But Vancouver criminal lawyer Adrian Smith says it's likely the most pragmatic and humane move at this point. I think it's time to do a much deeper dive and see how many folks we can really empty out of public institutions and and meet them with community supports. Smith says it's just not possible to do adequate social distancing in a prison setting. And she suspects the lockdown measures in place because of the outbreak are basically the equivalent of solitary confinement. 
which is only ever used in Canada in extreme situations. This is really troubling, not just for uh, prisoners, obviously, who are inside, but also their family members and loved ones and professionals that are supporting them. And it's not only prisoners getting infected. According to their union, more than 60 correctional officers in federal prisons across the country have now tested positive, including at least five at Mission Institution, though none of the mission officers have gotten sick enough to need hospitalization. Like many frontline workers, they're concerned that their stock of personal protective equipment is running low, and they'd like to see more test kits made available. Paul Johnson, Global News. Legislative Bureau Chief Keith Baldry joins us now. Keith, mandatory quarantine measures are now in place for anyone returning mm -hmm. to this province from outside of the country. How is that going? Yeah, just kicked in on the weekend, uh, Colleen, and Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth took it upon himself to basically uh, conduct a field inspection. He went out to YVR to talk to staff and travelers. He even posted a picture that he took uh, saying that there's a uh, COVID-19 checkpoint, and you're being told when you arrive, if you're an international flight, you've got to submit plans and proof that you have a self-isolation plan in place with an address and information about who's going to bring you food and such, and you have to present it to them. And if not, Mike Farnworth will explain what happens. There's a very uh, thorough screening process in place now and it's very well organized and it's very impressive in fact how people are coming through, how they're being processed, how they're being dealt with. Uh, over, the overwhelming majority of people had a, uh, a self-isolation plan. Good news. Keith, Dr. Henry has said that this is a critical weekend to bend the curve. What mm -hmm. are you expecting at Monday's provincial briefing? Yeah, we're not going to see any results from what happened this weekend in terms of if people were not uh, keeping their social distance, were traveling too much. It takes four to seven days, according to Dr. Bonnie Henry, for that incubation period to, to uh, occur. So we're going to learn next weekend about the impact what happened this weekend. Hopefully the numbers aren't going to be great. Uh, we've been flatlining the last week or so. The number of overnight cases has been low 50 for more than a week now. Uh, perhaps that'll happen again tomorrow. The one thing that's sort of a wild card is what's happening at that mission, mission correctional facility. The numbers there continue to go up. At a, at a greater rate than the rest of the population. So that will be factored in tomorrow's numbers as well. Our briefing, though, uh, 1.30 tomorrow, and we'll carry that live on BC1, of course, and she'll be joined by Health Minister Adrian Dix, and I'll be on after. I'll see you there. Thanks yeah. so much, Keith. More dire warnings about the state of Vancouver's finances with fears the pandemic might force the city to declare insolvency. A survey done for the mayor's office by Research Co. shows 25% of property taxpayers will pay less than half of their 2020 tax bill, with 6% saying they won't pay any of it. The city had already been anticipating up to $189 million in losses this year due to shortfalls in revenues and fees. So with a possible 25% default on property taxes, Vancouver's mayor fears losing up to half a billion dollars in operating funds this year. By law, cities cannot operate deficits. So, for example, we've already had to lay off 1,500 staff because of a loss of operating revenue. What we're asking the province to do, I did ask them last week if we could have a direct influx of cash. Uh, it looks like that's a no. Uh, so what we really need, uh, if, if they can't offer cash, then what we need is uh, property tax deferment but that would be at the provincial level. So at the provincial level, uh, say for example, if you're a senior and you can't pay your property taxes, the province will lend you money so you can pay your property tax. We need that program extended to uh, all businesses uh, non and nonprofits uh, and residents, of course. 
When we do finally emerge from this pandemic, urban planners have dire warnings about what will happen if we don't adapt to how we interact and move about. As Aaron MacArthur reports, with residual fears about close contact, they're particularly concerned about a traffic catastrophe. Looking at the typical Vancouver arterial, it's easy to see the inequality. Most of the road given to cars. Tiny slivers left over to bikes and pedestrians. This infrastructure might have made sense a month ago. More people on four wheels than two. More people sitting than walking. But during the pandemic, according to former city planner Brent Taudrian, the whole concept of how people get around needs a rethink. And I think we're going to need to have greater conversations about how walking and biking and maybe even e-biking uh, uh, expands in the post-COVID era. Cities have quickly realized it's people who need the space. Vancouver turned half of Beach Avenue into a bike-walk zone. The question is, what happens when the pandemic ends? City planners like Charles Montgomery aren't optimistic. People will head back to the bus. I am sorry to say we are headed for a traffic congestion apocalypse. Governments have shown incredible speed dealing with the economic fallout, but inequality, density, housing affordability, even climate change are all issues that still need addressing. The time to act is before people settle back into the status quo. Our society will succeed to the degree by which we understand we're all in it together and that we invest in solutions that take care of all of us. How our city spaces look and how people act in them is still a huge unknown. But the blueprints for a more sustainable future are clear. Will anyone read them? Aaron MacArthur, Global News. A Vancouver man caught on camera spitting on an elevator control panel in a condo tower is apologizing for his actions. The man who doesn't want to be identified says he's horrified at his actions, which he described as reprehensible and inexcusable. He claims it was the result of a momentary fit of anger resulting from an ongoing dispute with the Strata Council in the building where he owns a suite. As part of his apology, he says he'll make a donation to the Council for Sanitation and will also seek professional counseling. It was an impulsive, stupid, ill-considered act at the best of times. Uh, but under the present circumstances, of course, it uh, has even more profound uh, concerns for people. And part of the reason to send the statement now is to just reassure people that uh, he's healthy, he's showing no symptoms. That doesn't excuse it, of course. It's just an effort to um, reassure people. Police on Vancouver Island are seeing a spike in mental health-related calls during the pandemic. West Shore RCMP just outside of Victoria say they received 98 mental health calls last month. That's compared to 68 in March of last year, a 44% increase. Police say isolation during normally social times like Easter weekend can lead to emotional stress. And they want the public to know that help is available. If you or someone you know is experiencing a mental health crisis, you can call Crisis Center BC or your local police. 
Port Moody police are reminding drivers to slow down. On Friday afternoon, officers stopped a vehicle doing 93 kilometers an hour in a 50K zone. The alleged offender was a new driver who also had several passengers in violation of physical distancing rules. The vehicle was impounded and the occupants educated about keeping two meters apart during the pandemic. Port Alberni firefighters battling an early wildfire Saturday afternoon. This fire broke out at around 5.30 off the busy Scott Kenny Trail, a new multi-use crosstown trail that connects the north and south sides of Port Alberni. Firefighters were able to contain the blaze, which was less than one hectare in size in about 30 minutes. Surrey RCMP are investigating what sparked a fast-moving fire that heavily damaged three properties. The fire began in a home under construction in the 7900 block of 126A Street late this morning. The flames jumped to two neighboring homes, forcing the residents there to flee. No one was hurt and still no word on a cause. A warning from search and rescue crews in central B.C. Don't walk on the ice. Nechaco Valley SAR and Vanderhoof have posted this photo to social media to remind people that ice surfaces are unpredictable and always changing, especially at this time of year. With changing spring temperatures, river or lake ice is not safe to be on. Volunteers are urging people to stay off the ice, keep children close and pets leashed. The Vancouver Park Board closed the Stanley Park seawall to bikes on Friday to allow for better physical distancing. Well, now there's also a push for runners to stay off the popular route. Kristen Robinson explains why and why some joggers are already seeking their own path during the pandemic. Wes Regan still running during the pandemic. He's just seeking out a lonelier route for his daily routine. I enjoy uh, not having to worry about ducking and dodging and diving, you know, around to avoid people. With seawalls packed, Regan choosing to exercise in empty industrial parks to make use of underutilized spaces and practice safe physical distancing. I think some people have uh, been a little agitated by runners that come through and they might breathe quite heavily and you hear them coming up behind you and, and uh, I think that... Um, Courteousness will go a long way to get us through this pandemic. A recent computer simulation by a Belgian research team tracked the slipstream from walkers, runners and cyclists. The findings, which are not peer-reviewed or published, suggest staying at least 5 to 10 metres behind fast walkers and runners to avoid the cloud of droplets they leave behind. We've been assured by um, our medical officer health here in Vancouver that it doesn't materially pose a risk if somebody zips by you quickly. But still, it's the perception and it's courtesy. Still, at least two park board commissioners urging runners to skip the seawall or busy paths for now, since staying two metres apart may not be enough. If they can do it safely, that's fine. Um, if they are fast runners and they're training, it's probably advisable for them to go elsewhere where they can you know, run at their own speed and not uh, run into anybody. Stanley Park already closed to vehicle traffic. It's seawall closed to bikes. Do you remember cyclists, please ride on the roads, not on the seawall. Those cyclists now riding car-free roads through the city's crown jewel, leaving the seawall for pedestrians. We need to find new ways of getting out and being active in a way that's safe for each other. Kristen Robinson, Global News. 
The pandemic forced the Union Gospel Mission to change the way it serves its annual Easter dinner this year. And there was no dine-in option. Instead, they're serving 1,200 meals to go over the course of the three-day weekend. Any workers wishing to dish up meals wore personal protective equipment and followed physical distancing guidelines. The organization says in these troubled times, it's more important than ever to offer vulnerable people a lifeline. There's lots of challenges facing people and things are bleak right now. A lot of people are scared. They're worried that they're going to get sick or worse. And there's not a lot of hope right now. And so that's why for this year we have our 30th Easter dinner where we're going to be serving an Easter meal to people in the community and remind them that we're here for them through everything that's going to be happening. Preparations are underway on the North Shore to provide Easter meals to frontline workers at Lionsgate Hospital. The meals are donated by Matt Kaluk Construction, a local company in North Vancouver that wanted a way to give back and also help a small business. They hired local catering company Served to make up the meals, which will feed some 200 staff members tomorrow. Anyone who's really a part of this, um, you know, they're there. They're not there with their families and they are missing... Um, quite a bit of time away from their family. So even if it's something to help them kind of break up their routine of having to deal with this, a nice meal at work, I think will help them out. I got a bit emotional. I can't imagine what it's like to to be working in that hospital with such a scare that's going on. And it's priceless that what they're doing. A BC Highway maintenance company is providing porta-potties for truckers during the pandemic. With most businesses closed, truckers and delivery drivers are finding it hard to access washrooms along their routes. In the Kootenay Boundary region, Yellowhead Road and Bridge has put out porta-potties on the Paulson Pass, Bombay Pass and Rossland Way scales to give long-haul drivers some relief. The province has also placed porta-potties at commercial vehicle inspection stations. A well-known Okanagan Lake monster is doing his part to protect the public against COVID-19. Ogopogo is now donning a mask in Kelowna. A pair of friends came up with the plan to place it on the mythical creature as a symbol to remind everyone to do their part to stay safe and stop the spread. They say the entire community, including the Ogopogo, has a role to play in maintaining physical distancing to help flatten the curve. The deaths of 31 residents at a Montreal senior's home where the owners allegedly concealed health information and staff left their posts amid an outbreak of COVID-19 is now under investigation by the coroner, health authorities and police. And as Dan Spector reports, families of residents are voicing their anger. News that the Heron residents had seen 31 deaths since March 13th attracted gestures of compassion on Sunday, but also anger. I was very upset, but then again, I'm, I'm more upset that I don't have a father. Her father, John Whitehead, was 89 when he died here last Friday. He had COVID-19. It's the management. It's the owner. They'll have to pay. Crime scene investigators from the major crimes unit were on site looking into possible negligence. We're collecting documents that we're seizing, uh, notably stuff like uh, work schedule, list of employees. On Sunday, Quebec's coroner's office announced it will formally investigate the deaths here at Heron. But a medical malpractice lawyer says that's not enough and that any government inquiry should be fully public. 102-year-old Sam Abrason was among the 31 dead. According to his family, Abrason was still vibrant and sharp. They want to know how the final days of his illustrious life played out. For sure, for the last uh, you know four or five days, just not, not, not only not being able to get in touch with my grandfather, but not being able to get anybody on the phone. And then the next call you get is that he's, he's gone. 
Health authorities dropped into the residence Sunday as well, having taken control from owner Katasa Development Group. There is stability now, says Lynn McVeigh, the CS West Island president. Families say even before the pandemic, things were bad. We took him to the dentist. Last year, his diapers hadn't been changed. Three years ago, Quebec's ombudsman was called to investigate Heron. Allegations of poor care, bad food and more. But the ombudsman report concluded the home adequately responded to its residents' needs. The way that these inspections are conducted does not allow uh, the, the inspectors to detect uh, or to denounce uh, maltreatment situations. Patrick Menard says a class action lawsuit is already in the works against the owner and health authorities. We have already been contacted by some uh, some family members. The owner of the residence, Samir Chowiri, has not responded to multiple calls and emails. Dan Spector, Global News, Dorval. Pope Francis led an Easter Mass inside an empty St. Peter's Basilica with no public participation. The ceremony usually attracts some 100,000 people to St. Peter's Square, but this year it was held inside the church with just a few attendants assisting the pontiff. All the Pope's Holy Week activities have been live-streamed or modified to prevent the spread of COVID-19. The pontiff focused on a message of hope and solidarity during these uncertain times. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson has been discharged rather, from hospital after ending up in the ICU last week when his COVID-19 symptoms worsened. He spent three nights in intensive care before returning to a ward on Thursday. The 55-year-old was reportedly given oxygen but was not put on a ventilator when his breathing became difficult. Downing Street says the PM will continue his recovery at his country residence and will not be immediately returning to work following advice from his medical team. I want to pay my own thanks to the utterly brilliant doctors, leaders in their fields, uh, men and women, but several of them for some reason called Nick, who took some crucial decisions a few days ago, for which I will be grateful for the rest of my life. I want to thank the many nurses, men and women whose care has been so astonishing. For the first time in history, Every U.S. state is under a disaster declaration. There are more than 550,000 confirmed cases of COVID-19 in the U.S., and at least 21,000 people have died. The U.S. has suffered more COVID-19 deaths than any other country in the world. And as Jennifer Johnson explains, there's concern more Americans could die if President Trump reopens the economy too soon. praying for hope this Easter Sunday, in some cases through video. In a handful of states, worshipers ignored health experts and congregated in churches. This Easter will be much different than others. In his Easter address, U.S. President Donald Trump promised America will soon get back to normal, despite COVID-19 infection and death rates still on the rise. It's a plague on our country like nobody's ever seen. But we're winning the battle, we're winning the war. This week, the president plans to meet with his new task force on reopening the economy with a targeted May 1st date. Already his own health experts are pushing back, saying they still don't have the right diagnostic tests to protect people. This team of experts, all of government approach, they're focused at looking at the earliest possible time that we can get Americans back to wait, back to work safely and to give Americans the confidence they need. World health experts also urging caution. We think it's going to be a virus that stalks the human race for quite a long time to come until we can all have a vaccine that will protect us. 
The nation's top infectious disease expert now admits concerns about the economy led the U.S. to wait too long, mid-March, to order protective measures to stop the spread of the virus. Obviously, if we had right from the very beginning shut everything down, it may have been a little bit different, but there was a lot of pushback about shutting things down back then. As the virus keeps tens of millions of Americans out of work, food banks are stretched to their limits. People waited in their cars for two hours at this distribution site in Hawaii. I've never seen anything like it, but I don't think America has ever seen anything like the COVID crisis that we're having right now. This, this is extraordinary. Meanwhile, the Treasury Department says tens of millions of Americans will start receiving their coronavirus stimulus payments next week. Some hope on this Easter Sunday for millions suffering from this pandemic. Jennifer Johnson, Global News, Washington. There is a blood test that can detect antibodies against COVID-19. It's called serologic testing, and it's not widely available yet, but it is a way to see which people have had the virus and have recovered, something that could be a game changer during the pandemic. In New York today, Governor Andrew Cuomo issuing an executive order to increase access to a blood test developed by a New York lab that looks for antibodies to the coronavirus. We're going to expand the number of people who are eligible to do the antibody test. The hope they'll show who's had the coronavirus and therefore may have immunity. Dr. Anthony Fauci says more antibody tests will roll out in the next week or two. That is part of things the kind that you might need to come back and make a gradual return to normality. What we don't know is we don't know how long that protection would last. Across the country, dozens of labs are scrambling to make those tests. Dr. Ida Bergstrom was able to buy rapid tests for her practice in Washington, D.C., with a line indicating the presence of antibodies. Now this is all we have, and it's certainly not perfect, but it's a lot better than the information we had over a week ago. This weekend, USC researchers began a public health study using rapid tests donated by a Minnesota lab. They plan to assess how many in Los Angeles County have already had coronavirus and where they live. They were overwhelmed with calls from people wanting to participate. My email is filled with hundreds and hundreds of emails uh, from people who want to participate in the study. On Meet the Press this morning, the FDA commissioner said he's concerned some antibody tests already on the market may not be precise or accurate. No test is 100 percent perfect, but what we don't want are wildly inaccurate tests because, as I said before, that's going to be much worse having wildly inaccurate tests than having no test. When it comes to diagnostic tests, those nose swabs to see if someone has the active virus, nearly 2.7 million Americans have now been tested. But that's less than 1% of the overall U.S. population. And access to those tests varies. I'm getting tested today. When my husband, who's been symptomatic for 11 days, finally felt well enough to drive to a site, he had to wait three days for an appointment. You're watching Global News Hour at 6. Also, there's no such thing as Saturdays anymore. Always socially relevant and now socially distant, SNL adapts to the pandemic. We're going to have highlights from last night's show right after Yvonne's forecast. Uh, I thought they pulled it off pretty well, to yes, be honest. Yes, yes. Uh, there's a couple of good gems in there that we might be using for quite some time, too. No so. kidding. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Colleen. Uh, happy Easter, everyone. Uh, what a beautiful day today for Easter egg hunt. Temperatures are warmed up, but it is even going to be warmer in our long-range forecast. And I'll have more in just a moment. Starting off with some fantastic photos that were capped 
captured today. The cherry blossoms and a beautiful view of the North Shore Mountains. We can see grouse and the lions. And this was captured by Terry. Early this morning in Ladner, Barbara getting up early to get this shot. And another great photo that was taken in Kelowna. A few clouds, high-level ones captured by Nancy. All right, this one's for you, Colleen. This is for your old Cammy putting out some carrots for the Easter Bunny. So that's a great shot. And the Easter Bunny, yes, made an appearance in Pitt Meadows. Declan and the Easter Bunny enjoying the views together. And this one taken by the Community Fire Department in Sun Peaks. Kendall got to see the Easter Bunny drive by in her neighborhood. So thank you so much for all those photos and a very happy Easter to everyone. Send us your photos at weatherwindow at globaltv.com. That's the email, a description and a location is always appreciated. A stunning shot right now is the Overlook English Bay. Temperatures today were very pleasant. We got into the double digits. We're currently sitting at 12 degrees. We've got clear conditions. We'll continue to see a similar weather picture for tomorrow and it's warming up over the next little while. A northwest Westerly wind, it's light at 11 kilometers per hour. Chilly this evening with the clear skies will dip down to 3. For tomorrow morning, we'll be sitting at 7. And for the afternoon, 14 if you're by the water. Areas away from the water getting up to 17 degrees. And I'll show you which day we could potentially get up to 20 for a few areas. We've got a ridge of high pressure. This is the dominant feature that we've been following. It'll still build in very strong for most areas across the province tomorrow. Tuesday, a slight blip for the north and central coast. Central interior and southern interior could see some showers popping up, and it'll push in late in the day on Monday. By the evening, the north coast will see some heavier rain, and then it does start to rebound quite quickly once again on Tuesday. Temperature trend across Metro Vancouver, so it starts to warm up. It'll really be midweek, Wednesday, Thursday, some of the warmer days, and away from the water, even getting up to 20 degrees. So temperatures are on the rise, and it'll be paired with sunshine. For the northern half of the province, there is more cloud cover that is going to start to build in. North Coast will see rain tomorrow night and heavy at times. Continuing through the day on Tuesday, most areas across the central interior will start to see that rain moving in late evening and overnight and similar across the southern interior. So a nice dry start to the morning for Monday, but then by the evening and leading in towards Tuesday, that'll be the blip in the forecast where we are tracking some showers. Whistler will bump up to 13 degrees in all areas across the south coast. Sunshine on tap away from the water tomorrow, even a touch warmer, climbing up to 17 as the high. Wednesday, Thursday, Colleen, fantastic it is going to be warm, quite balmy for a few areas as we look to see uh, or look to see temperatures getting up to around 20 degrees. Gorgeous. Thanks so much, Yvonne. Saturday Night Live returned to the air last night from a planned break that turned into a month-long hiatus thanks to the pandemic. But the sketch comedy show, well, it was a little bit different. Have a look. And live from Zoom, it's sometime between March and August. Yeah. Oh, this is crazy. Let's do this. The episode consisted of sketches filmed remotely from the homes of the cast members. The show even had a musical guest via video, Chris Martin of Coldplay. Tom Hanks, who recently recovered from COVID-19 in Australia, appeared as guest host from his kitchen. <laughs> also, there's no such thing as Saturdays anymore. It's just every day is today. And we're not really live, but we are doing everything we can to make this feel like the SNL you know and love. I am even using cue cards, see? I am even using cue cards. 
Four decades ago today, a young man from Port Coquitlam got up at four o'clock in the morning to begin a journey that would end too soon. But in starting it, he would change the world forever. And as Sarah McDonald reports, his message of hope and perseverance is even more important today. The young man the world remembers as the 21-year-old who first embarked on this historic cross-country journey would be in his 60s today. 40 years ago, Terry Fox hit the pavement and inspired a nation, kicking off his Marathon of Hope in Atlantic Canada with an ambitious goal of running a marathon a day as a cancer survivor and an amputee, all the while raising funds for research. Terry journaled every day during his Marathon of Hope. Before he fell asleep at night, he would journal and... His first words in his journal on April 12th, uh, 40 years ago today, were, today is a day it all begins. And he could never have imagined what that, what that would, would mean 40 years later. And what a legacy that lives on in honor of the homegrown hero. Born in Winnipeg and raised in the Tri-Cities, his brother Fred by his side every step of the way and continuing the fundraising fight in the decades since Terry's death. Terry would be so proud of where we've come today with cancer research. Over $800 million have been raised in Terry's name. Um, people are surviving their cancer diagnosis. They're living longer because of the research that uh, happens here in Canada, some of the best research in the world. And that's what Terry would want. Of course, Terry wouldn't live long enough to complete his own journey, cut short by the cancer that first claimed his leg and then spread to his lungs. Go! His marathon carried on by Canadians ever since. Though this year, the Terry Fox run could look different under a global pandemic. We're about to go for a run and a walk um, to celebrate the day. And uh, we'd love to see how you're celebrating the 40th anniversary as well. Thank you. For now, the Fox family is urging Canadians to honor the Marathon of Hope in their own way, whatever that looks like, by getting outside or donating to the cause so close to their heart. Terry would say thank you. His message of hope and perseverance just as poignant, if not more so now, four decades on. Sarah McDonald, Global News. All right, Barry's here with a look at sports. And as if COVID-19 weren't bad enough, you have discovered a new ailment that is affecting mostly male sports fans. Mm -hmm, yeah, we're calling that nanopause <laughs> right now. Boom, boom. We're all a little punchy right now. Yes, we are. 31 days or so into this. All right, thanks, Colleen. Uh, well, it looks going to be interesting to see how this pause in the sporting world will affect professional athletes. An extended break could mean some older ones or maybe those on the bubble will never get back to the big leagues. For younger ones like the Whitecaps' Theo Bear, it could be a new opportunity or it could also stunt their growth early in their careers. That remains to be seen. But Bear is eager to return to the pitch to continue his development in pro soccer. Twenty nineteen was a breakout year for Theo Bear. He made his MLS debut just before his twentieth birthday and got into seventeen matches, scoring a couple of fantastic goals. He was hoping to build on that in twenty twenty, but like everyone, Theo Bear has had to hit the pause button. I was I was really looking forward to this season because uh, I felt like I, I established something and uh, and I, I proved my worth it to a certain extent last year. Um, so I was uh, ready to hit the ground running this year, but um, unfortunately it, it had to stop and 
I'm just excited to get going again. For a 20-year-old with so much energy and determination to keep his young career trending upward, this stoppage is especially challenging. But you get an idea of his maturity as he tries to make the best of a situation that has turned everyone's world upside down. I'm learning a lot about myself and uh, about my my habits when I'm when I'm stuck in a home and and trying to beat out the bad ones and uh, build good ones. So I'm learning and and that's that's what life's about right now. Bear grew up in Ottawa, but like all the Whitecaps, is staying in Vancouver to live and train during the stoppage. But it hasn't stopped him from staying in touch with his biggest fan, his mom Marjorie, who's a nurse at the Children's Hospital in Ottawa. I'm very proud of the young man that he's, uh, he's becoming. Um, I also am very proud of how uh, driven he is and how disciplined he is um, in regards to his soccer career. Um, he knows that it's a process and he's working hard every day uh, to fulfill his dreams. As proud as mom is of her son, it goes both ways. Since I was, I don't know, I'd say like seven Eight years old, my mom would come home telling me stories about uh, kids basically calling her superwoman. So my mom has always been my superwoman, and she does it for a bunch of kids at at the children's hospital as well. So it's definitely my mom and always will be. She's going to make me cry. (laughs) Being on the front lines at hospitals right now does take some courage and belief. But Theo's got no doubt his mom's got this. It's a blessing, and that's all because she gets to help people every day, and that's what she wants to do. And I also know that she's going to take care of herself because she knows how to do that as well. So I don't worry too much about my mom. She's she's a boss lady. She knows what she wants to do, and she knows how she's going to do it. Well, in case you missed it, late last night, Abbotsford's Jordan Kawaguchi came up just short in his bid to win the Hobie Baker Award for the top player in American college hockey. Kawaguchi, who's a junior at North Dakota, was one of three finalists, but he lost out to St. Louis Blues draft pick Scott Perunovic. Perunovic is a dynamic offensive defenseman, scoring six goals and 34 assists last season. Kawaguchi had the second most points in NCAA hockey with 15 goals and 30 assists. He was named a first-team All-America. Kawaguchi, a former Chilliwack chief, was not drafted by an NHL team, but he should sign as a free agent when he decides to leave school. Well, with no hockey, we thought we'd try something fun. Put together an all-time Canucks roster of 20. Uh, 20 players, that is. Two goalies, six defensemen, four centers, eight wingers, even a head coach. All of the guys in our sports department have made our picks, and we'll let you know about them next week. But we'd like to know yours as well. So go on to our website at globalnews.ca slash Vancouver All-Time Roster. You'll see a list of names. It won't be uh, everyone that's played for the Canucks, but all the main guys will be there. Players from the six decades of Canucks hockey. We will hear from some of the players and get their takes as well. So make your picks, and we'll sort it out uh, all next week. I think a lot of obvious choices, but some uh, some interesting decisions, maybe from a guy like a Jan Hour. I think maybe you're... not not as uh, not what you might think, but uh, you know everyone's got their choices. It's good; it makes it up for debate. Okay, the gang's all here, and it's time for our nightly thanks to our BC healthcare heroes. Yvonne, who is being honored tonight? Uh, tonight we're honoring the team at Surrey Memorial Hospital. This great 
group shot was taken by one of the nurses at their, as their ER team says thank you to the community for their support during the daily 7 p.m. first responder procession. So thank you to all the staff at Surrey Memorial Hospital. Great signs there as well. If you have a healthcare hero to nominate, email us a few pictures and why they are your hero to Beastie Healthcare Heroes at globalnews.ca. That is a great photo. They look, they look like they're having fun, and I know they're working really <laughs> hard. All right, thanks for that, Yvonne. Uh, it has been weeks since we were told to stay home as much as possible. Finding productive ways to fill our time can be a challenge, especially if you're a kid. But an eight-year-old boy in Miami, Florida, has been using his time to perfect his golf shot. Have a look at this. That is so awesome. After trying hundreds of times, Nicholas Rodriguez landed the shot on Saturday. Nick's mom says he has been working to nail that shot for more than 400 times over the last month. The young golfer hasn't been able to play outside, obviously, due to the pandemic. So we started trying different trick shots around the house. You see what you can accomplish mm. if but, only you practice. Right, but the magic of TV said no, first, first attempt. Like, they, you don't need to know it was 400. Right? You yeah. just say, yeah, first time. First time. Perfect. <laughs> Did really well. <laughs> Magic of TV. No kidding. All right. We want to thank you for joining us tonight. Jordan will be here at 11 o'clock. Stay with us now as Global National's Donna Friesen hosts Coronavirus, the new reality. That's next.